This is the first of three podcasts looking at some of the most poetic shots in the history of cinema. Not the greatest, the longest, most beautiful, or technically innovative. The most poetic. By which I mean a shot that defines the film's content. What I call compound images. For what we see is so strong, it breaks through the surface to reveal the meaning of the film. So, no matter how audacious or iconic some shots are, I'm concentrating instead on an image's thematic force. For instance, in Brian De Palma's Carrie, when a bucket of blood spills down on the young debutante. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, when the gang walk through the backlot. Or Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, where Dr. Ryan Stone floats high above the Earth's surface. This podcast focuses on how crane, tracking and panning shots are timed to withhold and reveal new information. The earliest films were presented in the same way, a static camera before which the action was staged. This extended a tradition painters have practiced for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and also continued to the theatre tradition where everything was staged within the one proscenium. But some film pioneers dared to move the camera, panning it from left to right to follow the action, tilting up and down to reveal new information and then even moving the camera so audiences would feel that they too were partaking in the events, interacting with the characters on screen. And that is what camera movement is all about, immersing the audience in the events and concealing and revealing new information at just the right moment. In other words, it is about space and time. On November the 16th, 1966, the BBC aired Cathy Come Home, a drama documentary written by Jeremy Sanford and directed by Ken Loach. It focused on Cathy, played by Carol White, a young woman who travels to London looking for work and a place to live. There she meets Reg, played by Ray Brooks. They fall in love, get married and start a family. Me and my husband are looking for a house to buy. I wondered if you could help us. Well, we have a number of properties in the lower price ranges. It's uh, £3,500 to £5,000, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in. Mm. On which we could probably arrange a 90% mortgage, other things being equal. May I ask uh, how big your deposit would be? Well, well, I'm off work now, so we haven't got quite so much at the moment. But I reckon we could manage about, well, about £100. Oh, £100 would barely cover the legal costs involved. You might be lucky and find a new flat with a deposit of only 400 but uh, <laughs> you'll be very lucky. Reg is a driver while Cathy stays home to raise their children. But after Reg is involved in a crash, he loses his job. Soon they are in arrears and facing eviction. Sanford's script deftly switches back and forth between Cathy's story and the narration of Londoners. We've got plenty of company and I think we're reasonable people that we all get on together. Uh, we have our ups and downs, you can fight over the kids, but um, apart from that, we're lucky I suppose, better off than some people. I don't like one half of the people in it. And what is more, there's none of them neighbourly. They've always got something to say about you, behind your back. I had a friend lived next door to me. She really would have given a thousand pounds, as she used to say, to move out of here, but now she's gone. She's got a brand new masonette. She said she'd still like to come back if she could bring her flat back here. She likes the company and the friends. Sanford's structure not only created great impetus, but also meant that the story avoided any sentimentality. Whenever we return to Cathy, 
Her life has changed dramatically since the last time we were with her. The eviction happens a half an hour into the drama. And until then, the way Loach and his director of photography, Tony Eamy, presented everything, it was almost exclusively by way of a static camera. The shot I've selected, which lasts all of 40 seconds, begins with the bailiffs breaking through the door the Red has barricaded to prevent the eviction. As the bailiffs walk in, we follow them and see Reg gather up his two eldest children. From camera left, Kathy appears cradling her youngest baby. She walks towards the front door, forcing the camera to pull back. Kathy exits the house, the camera pans right, and she walks out into the street. It is only then that we see dozens of neighbours looking on. And that revelation is where the image compounds its content, so we get a greater understanding of what the film is about. Kathy and Reg's neighbours have not come to assist in the eviction, and neither have they gathered around to mock them. They have come to watch, and in watching, they all but silently declare their helplessness. It could well be them next week. Now consider this. It is estimated that when the BBC aired the film, 12 million people tuned in to watch. That was almost one quarter of Britain's population. After the broadcast ended, the BBC switchboard was inundated with calls from the public asking what they could do to help. In that eviction scene, the audiences at home may have been looking on in shock, but what they were really seeing was themselves standing by helplessly in the street. Amy's frame changed the television screen into a mirror in which the home audience saw itself. With a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good, the bad and the ugly, Sergio Leone made three westerns that took many of the genre's tropes and all but extended them to breaking point. At the end of the third film in his trilogy, when he brought together his three anti-heroes, Blondie, Angel Eyes and Tuco, for the famed shootout in the cemetery, Leone had thought he was done with the western. But then, in 1966, he was approached by Paramount Pictures to make one more. And even before Leone had thought of a plot, let alone a single character or a line of dialogue, he had decided on a title, Once Upon a Time in the West. But since Leone was Italian and spoke little, if any, English, we have to appreciate what he was saying in his native tongue. Cera una volta il vest translates as This was a time in the West, meaning the West is now gone, which means that the film is going to deal with its passing, and in depicting its passing, Leone had to illustrate what replaced it. Taking the premise of Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar, in which Joan Crawford played Vienna, a saloon keeper who puts up solitary resistance against outlaws who resent the coming of the railroad, Leone has Jill McBain, played by Claudia Cardinale, coming west from New Orleans to settle with her new husband, Brett. Many years earlier, Brett had purchased a seemingly worthless plot of land that only he foresaw would be a point at which the coming railroad would have to eventually pass through. But before Jill arrives, Brett and his entire family are murdered. Jill's train then pulls up into the remote station of Flagstone. With passengers and all manner of goods being moved about the platform, Jill looks around, expecting to see Brett. With no sign of him, she checks the station's clock. It reads five minutes to eight. 
Leonie's editor, Nina Morale, cuts to a shot of Jill looking increasingly worried. She then looks down at her pocket watch. It now reads 10 past 11. Hours have passed in the blink of an eye and the once teeming station is now empty. Finally, Jill decides to consult with the station master. And here comes one of the most poetic shots in all of cinema. Jill moves along the boardwalk and steps through the doorway into the station and talks to the station master. But instead of cutting inside the room, Leone has director of photography Tonina Deli Colley keep the camera outside so we are looking through the window so we can still see what's going on. But it is not only that. The window's frame is the same aspect ratio as that of Deli Colley's cinemascope frame. And then, as the station master guides Jill out through the other side of the building, the camera cranes up and up and up over the station house roof. We see in the distance a town in the midst of ferocious construction. Builders, carpenters, masons, ropes, rigs, horses, diggers, drivers. This is the future. And we only get to see it with Jill's arrival. Jill is from back east and so she represents civilization, which will signal the end of the West. In one shot, Sergio Leone managed to encapsulate not only the theme of his film, but one of the driving themes of an entire genre. Mike Nichols' Oscar-winning 1988 picture, Working Girl, is very often overlooked as a timepiece, a rom-com more than a satire about corporate politics in Reagan's America. Kevin Wade's script manages to layer in several motifs, perhaps the most prominent of which is identity. The film's heroine, Tess McGill, played by Melanie Griffith, masquerades as her boss, Catherine Parker, played by Sigourney Weaver. But Tess doesn't only temporarily take the seat behind Catherine's desk. She borrows Catherine's clothes, changes her hairstyle so that it resembles Catherine's, and even discards her own New Jersey accent in favour of a Fifth Avenue intonation. And as if that were not enough, she even starts dating Catherine's sometimes boyfriend, Jack Trainer, played by Harrison Ford. Although it must quickly be added, that Tess is completely unaware of Jack's relationship with Catherine because when she meets him, he lets on he is not Jack Trainer. What's your name? No, no names, no business cards, no you must know so-and-so. What is this? No resumes, let's just meet like human beings, for once. Well, it's nice to meet you, whatever your name is, but I really do have to go. Please, please, one drink. As for Catherine, she steals Tess's business proposal and tries to pass it off as her own idea. So, by the time Wade's script reaches its third act, pretty much everyone has pretended to be someone else, so deceptions need to be exposed and real identities need to be revealed. Everything unravels in a meeting to arrange a merger between two media corporations. Thank God I'm here. What the hell is going on? You're being tricked, that's what's going on. Catherine, what are you... Jack, just trust me and sit down. 
My name is Catherine Parker, and I'm an associate partner in mergers and acquisitions at Petty Marsh. And this woman is my secretary. She's not? Oh, no? Ask her. You're not her secretary? I can explain, Jack. Oh, Jesus. You are her secretary. Well, I was laid up with broken bones. She rifled through my desk, found my memo outlining a Trask radio acquisition, and has been passing it off as her idea. It was my idea. She stole it from me, I swear. Good God, Tess, don't you know when to stop? But you're lying! And this is where Nichols and his director of photography, Michael Balhaus, arrange an elegant tracking shot that effectively encapsulates the film's theme of identity. As the disgraced Tess gets up from the round table, Balhaus places his camera on the opposite side where Catherine is sitting, so we see Tess through her eyes. Then, as Tess walks around the table and out of the room, Balhaus tracks his camera around in the opposite direction, so the Tess is always in the frame. But which means that when Tess leaves the room, the camera has moved from Catherine's point of view to that of Jack. And with the camera now behind Jack, we see Tess walking out the door. The camera then rack focuses, and our attention now shifts to Catherine. We see the look of hurt on her face. She knows now that Jack loves Tess. And that truth could only be seen if the camera were in Jack's point of view. No one else in the room has the slightest inkling of the relationship. Elegant, simple and dramatic, this shot is the perfect example of a compound image. In the next episode, we'll be looking at light, shadow and silhouette.